Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Goldfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership singer Shirley Hayden, who since the late 1970s has been one of P-Funk's most unique and well-heard voices. Serving as a member of Parlet, she also appeared in albums by Parliament, Funkadelic, Bootsy Collins, The Sweatband, Felipe Wynn, The P-Funk All-Stars, George Clinton, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Andre Fox, and Gary Scheider. Hayden has also sung for Kid Rock and Sheryl Crow. And in recent years, she has continued to bring the serious funk on her own and in collaboration with a group known as the Black Men Review. Shirley, thank you for joining me. How are you? Uh, <laughs> I'm good. I'm good considering everything that the country, the world is going through. I am doing really well. Thank you for asking. Well, it's so great to have you. Uh, much appreciate you carving out the time and spending it with us. You're very welcome. And thank you for asking. And you're uh, coming to us from Detroit area or whereabouts? Detroit, where it is snowy and icy today. Growing up in Detroit, um, such an incredible musical hotbed, especially for funk and soul. What was it like for you uh, early on and, and how did you gravitate towards singing? All of my life, I have 
saying. My uh, father was a vocalist, um, a bass voice, um, not realizing how young my parents were back in the day. But dad was a part of a couple of gospel groups. Um, my father's family, grandma, uncle, my uncle Bobby played piano. He played gospel, uh, gospel piano with the Meridian Mass Choir. They traveled the country uh, back in the 80s. Yeah, they were really hot in the 80s traveling the country doing gospel music. So, um, yeah, I, I was raised with the music, the voice being that center of attention, having a, a good voice. Elementary school, um, I was always in choir. My early teaching was with uh, Mrs. Sane. She really... Um, she, she was a coach and uh, she was a motivator uh, for young, bashful Shirley to step out <laughs> and, and sing. So yeah, I started early. Um, as a teenager, I was part of many uh, startup groups, one being a group called Stahim. And uh, Stahim consisted of myself, my best friend Ping, uh, the Carter brothers, Robert Carter, Kevin Carter, um, Benjamin. Uh, it was a, a beautiful group. And we would play the local uh, parties, local uh, 876, all of the uh, local parties. We played numerous uh, neighborhood bars, you know, just honing our talents, basement, wood shedding. You know, we, we get together whenever just to... Uh, just to practice, just to practice. So uh, that's what it was all about. Getting together and, and uh, woodshedding, honing our talents. Who were some of your musical heroes and, and singers that you really admired? Um, back in the day, back in the day, I would say... Uh, it was Parliament Funkadelic, mesmerizing music. Um, the funk rock groups, uh, Vanilla Fudge, uh, Steppenwolf, Mandrill, uh, yeah, it, it was the Beatles, of course. Um, Fifth Dimension, so many. I love group singing. Um, I love jazz, Miles Davis, 
uh, Betty Davis. Um, yeah. Motown, of course. <laughs> you know, all of the Motown groups were, and they were so close because they were here in Detroit. You could see them at your high school. The Temptations came to our high school, Northwestern High School. It was really huge. It was, it was big. But um, the spotlight has always been on um, music, my musical group. So it's in my blood, I guess you could say. It's in the, as my grandma would say, it's in your blood, baby. <laughs> I understand. Yeah, that's how I feel like, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, I always say that, you know, entertainment is in my blood, you know, just from being in that environment you know so okay yeah i'm sure coming up in detroit it was the same way music do you perform uh i dabble you know uh okay. that's part of the reason why i was a disc jockey for many years so okay. that's a big way that i've gotten the music to people in so, california yeah yeah oh, okay is that yeah. where you're from from los angeles uh oh, yeah okay. what uh what level of uh, performing did you achieve before connecting with uh, Malia and, and P-Funk? In numerous semi-professional groups um, around the city, we traveled a little bit, honing the skills, church, um, doing local plays, um, so that was basically at the extent of what I was doing before joining P-Funk. I was ready. I was ready because um, being a part of numerous semi-professional groups, um, you learn how to work a stage. You learn how to interact with the audience, uh, especially doing nightclubs. You know, people are drinking and hooting and hollering. <laughs> so you learn how to interact with the audience um, and um, just practice, just practice, practice. I love practice. We would get up in the morning playing records. Uh, we studied the album covers. Um, we would break songs down. That was part of our study. So just, you know, honing, honing, woodshedding. Yeah. And how did you come to know Malia and how did that transpire that you were invited to come participate or join? I was dating, let's see, around 77 76, 76, 76, about 76. I was dating um, Debbie Wright's brother, Jim Wright. And hanging with Jim, you know, we went to all the concerts. Um, he just had a, a, a knack for getting into concerts backstage. You know, he had that gift of gab. And then his sister being the star that she was, it seemed to me that people knew Debbie, just name dropping. And you 
you're in, you know, you're getting tickets. We'll see you later at the concerts or we're hanging at the, you know, the parties. Um, Jim was instrumental in connecting me with Malia Franklin. Um, I was hoping to audition for Debbie maybe a year prior to, I don't know why, I can't recall why I wanted to audition for Debbie uh, maybe a year before getting with P-Funk. I'm just now learning the, the early backstory of Parlette, which is just fascinating to me. I didn't know that they were Parlette, George Clinton, the whole P-Funk machine uh, was putting together the girl groups. Um, Malia being from Detroit, but she lived in LA. And I know that she was performing around LA and she was in contact with members of Parliament Funkadelic, you know. I believe that uh, George was a close friend of her family. So um, she knew that they were looking to put together this girl group. So they had her in mind. When Debbie Wright became ill, by my being in the position that I was in dating her brother, I had sort of the inside um look at what was going on and why they um were looking for other females malia had been set up to be a member of parlette early on um with the promise of having a solo career under the Parliament Funkadelic flag. Meanwhile, I need you to be a part, to become a part of this female trio. Um, then signing contracts with Casablanca, she would have her solo deal. Malia came to Detroit along with her then husband, Donnie Sterling, who became Parlette's bass player and band leader after a while. Um, yeah, she came to Detroit. They the females, Brides of Funkenstein, uh, Debbie Wright, Jeanette Perkins were in and out of Detroit recording. And uh, Jim Wright happened to be talking to Malia Franklin one afternoon about what was going on with uh, his sister and uh, putting together, forming this new group and um, he introduced us. You know, we started hanging out and 
one thing led to another. Uh, yeah, so that's how I met Melia. She came to Detroit. Her family lived here. Her mom, her father, sister, and Seth was here. So she had been in and out of Detroit. But I didn't know her prior to um, joining Parlet. Did, did you have to audition? I did, which was frightening. Like I said, I tried to audition for Debbie earlier. And I really can't recall what that's about. Maybe I have to ask Jim about that. What was that about? <laughs> but uh, I did. I had to, re I had to uh, audition. And um, like I said, they were looking for girls. And it was a, a, a hurried situation because Parlette, Parlette being Debbie Wright, Jeanette Perkins, and Malia Franklin, that was the first phase of Parlette, had started recording The Pleasure Principle. And something was going on with Debbie, and they needed to fill that spot because Debbie was no longer able to continue or to begin a tour. She started the recording, but I believe they saw that Debbie would not be able to, um, she wouldn't be able to, to withstand a tour. So they needed to fill that spot. And that had a lot to do with the contractual agreements with Casablanca Records, Neil Bogart and George and them. So Neil Bogart had made, Neil Bogart, who was the president of Casablanca and George agreed upon whatever terms they agreed upon. Malia was to have a solo deal. Uh, she was also supposed to be a lead sing the lead singer for Parlette. Unbeknownst, I believe, to Debbie Wright and Jeanette Perkins. I think that started a lot of uh, tension. And uh, one afternoon, my boyfriend then was Jim Wright and Malia were talking on the phone about what needed to happen with the group. Um, Jim put together the uh, musical, the, the band, and Malia, I guess, was in charge of finding the voice because I was not the first choice. I believe there was a girl out of California, a friend of hers, a friend of Malia's that she had been singing with who was her first choice. But this afternoon that Jim and Malia were on the phone and, and Jim always playing the music in the background, I was, I just happened to be singing to the pleasure principal and Malia asked, well, who was that singing? And Jim said that surely. And she said, well, damn, that's the voice right there. And so it was on for me after that. So your first experience with them was actually performing on stage or in a studio? My first performance was in the studio. 
My first performance was, let's see, how did that work? Did I do the parliament? Because parliament was recording, parliament was recording One Nation at that time, finishing the, the touch-ups on One Nation. The touch-ups being um, added background vocals and hand claps. And I believe that was my initiation. Yeah. Okay. So Ron Dunbar, there was a meeting. They had put together the band. We were rehearsing Parlette. It's kind of it's kind of fuzzy right now, but which came first? <laughs> uh, it was all happening at the same time. Um, I record. I re, I auditioned for Parlette. Uh, Ron Dunbar gave the the finger up. She's okay. Went back, shared that information with George. I was invited to be a part of the recording, the latter recording of One Nation. That was my first recording. Yeah, that was my first recording. So I recorded uh, the back ground added background vocals with parliament funkadelic hand claps parliament funkadelic meanwhile in the studio uh finishing well pleasure principle had was completed so i toured we went on tour so i toured uh the pleasure principle album the second album I was a vocalist on the second album. Malia began the recording of the second album, which is the Booty Snatchers, but she didn't complete it. So yeah, all that was happening simultaneously. It was a lot going on. It's a lot going on, Scott. <laughs> it was yeah. I tell you, it, it was it was so magical. You know, every day, every day there was something going on, something musically happening. The studio wasn't that far from my house, United Sound Systems, which was on 2nd Avenue off of uh, West Grand Boulevard here in Detroit. Well-noted studio. Uh, Don Davis was the, the owner of the studio. Some of everybody recorded out of uh, United Sound. But like I said, it was, it was happening every day there was something going on. <laughs> so I recorded, I was recording and I was readying to go on tour uh, to work the Pleasure Principle album. So that's what we did. And meanwhile, I was recording uh, the hand claps and some additional vocals on One Nation, which was my first recording and then came the uh, the Motor Booty Affair. Yeah, that was in the winter. So this time, December, November, December uh, is a very important time in my musical careers when it all started for me professionally, I would say. Well, Pleasure Principle was a latter part of the summer. Yeah. And then the sort of the the fall winter we started recording the motor booty affair yeah it was a lot going on 
<laughs> yeah, you came in right 78. I mean, it was just in full fury right then. Yeah, I mean, I was kicking them out. Kicking them out. I mean, it was a, it was like a, a assembly line. It was an assembly line. And I was a part of it. <laughs> yeah, gosh. Um, how did you, how was it worked out with the three of you and Parlette? You know, how you would work your harmonies and, you know, who would, you know, take leads and that kind of thing? Well, um, with Parliament Funkadelic, they just threw you in, just, you know, pushed you into the mic. Gary Scheider was noted for pushing me into the mic. You know, get up in the mic. And I, I'm thinking I can hear myself loud and clear. <laughs> And I did want to stand out like I was standing out, but I had no, I couldn't help it. You know, the voice was there. And this is what he was showing me. We like that sound. I like the, the timbre of your voice. So get up in the mic. <laughs> you know. um, we, by my knowing harmony already, because of my studies, it was easy. I have an ear. You have to have an ear in order to do harmonies. And so Parlette did all of their harmonies. And um, yeah, so I had a, an ear for harmony. And um, I had a tone that... Gary, who acted as our um, vocal coach for the most part, enjoyed. So it, it was it was really easy for me to support the girls vocally. If you, I followed Malia for the most part. She was the most um, professional. Her voice was. Um, she was very comfortable singing harmonies. And everyone is not comfortable in singing harmonies because you can't hear. You have to be able to hear uh, the, the uh, different levels. So it was easy for me because of my background in studying voice. So I didn't have a problem. I didn't have a problem falling into place and then creatively um i like to play around with uh the voice you know i knew how to use my voice you know i i, I knew how to um support the other vocalists but like i said I, I was trying to stay out of the way vocally speaking but Gary insisted upon my being out front vocally. So, <laughs> and then I'm picking up, um, you know, you're, you're picking up all of these different vibrations from the other women. Malia didn't care. Malia was solid in what uh, she knew that her uh, career was on solid ground, so to speak. She was 
going to have a record deal. So she had no problem sharing vocally, opening herself up to me. We liked one another. We used to hang out quite a bit. She, my Pisces sister, she has a birthday coming up very soon. Um, we liked one another vocally. And so we played off one another vocally. Jeanette, on the other hand, wasn't so easy uh, to follow vocally, but uh, she had no choice but to be a part if she wanted to be a part of the group. <laughs> she had to take part in uh, supporting the three-part harmonies. We also did the background for Parlette as well as the lead. Some people are mistaken. Some of the fans tend to think that other females were doing the lead parts. No, Parlette did their own leads. But I tell you this, before I joined Parlette, um, Parlette being Debbie Wright, Jeanette, and I believe uh, Malia Franklin did some vocals on the Pleasure Principle album, which was their first album, there were, or there was another group that uh, was hired to strengthen the vocals in the studio. And that was a group called Brandy. Yeah. So Brandy came in to strengthen. I don't know if Brandy was in there before Malia came to Detroit. Um, or while they were finishing um, the last touches of the Pleasure Principle. But yeah, there was another group called Brandy that came in to strengthen the vocals. But once um, I joined forces with Malia, which is the second phase of Parlette, the vocals were on, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> they didn't have to show me anything vocally. Yeah, yeah. I, I had I had the talent. I had the talent. I didn't realize that I had a look, <laughs> and um, I had stage presence. Uh, from what I was told, <laughs> so I was young and uh, inexperienced as far as a big stage was concerned. So I knew how to work a small stage being, you know, local bars and such, but a huge stage like Soldier Field, you know, in front of 700,000, like, wow, it was thousands, thousands of people. That was, that was overwhelming. Yeah. That was overwhelming. You're with some of the greatest musicians that ever did it. You know, how did it feel when you actually got up on stage, you know, for the first time and you have these guys playing behind you and it's on the one and, uh, you know, people are vibing and, you know, what was that? I mean, your adrenaline must've been pumping. It was, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't get my footing. <laughs> you know, uh, I relied on the, the other two late, other two ladies heavily for uh, direction, guidance, but they were in their own world. So I had to find 
I had to find my footing. I had to find, I had to connect with my head and my body. I had to do that. So it, it took a minute. We had a badass band. Our band, which um, Jim Wright put together, was one of the most awesome bands that ever came together. So we, uh, we worked six, seven days in the basement readying to go on tour. So, um, yeah, we, we had a connection with the band and, and we just flowed. It was, it was magic, like I said, because we practiced, we rehearsed every day. It was like a, you know, building a car, so to speak. Um, putting those elements together. We had all the elements and we were learning how to put the elements together. Once we hit stage, it was, it was on. But um, hearing someone like uh, Bootsy's rubber band, I'm like, well, you know, I was mesmerized. <laughs> mesmerized. Here we are on stage with Bootsy's rubber band. Or, you know, we're on tour with uh, people like Rick James and, and such. Um, it was, it was a bit overwhelming, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> um, what was your early impression of, like of, of George? Of George? George was, uh, <laughs> he was a little guy at the, <laughs> at the time that I first met him. And uh, very standoffish, very sick. He was one who would be in the cut, so to speak. And he's listening and observing all the time, which made me nervous because he never did speak much to me, just stared a lot. And um, so I thought that was a little weird. I wanted him to uh, speak to me. But he was he was very observant and he was he was studying. He had a huge presence. You knew when George walked in the room that that was George Clinton. But it took a while before he, uh, of course, he's given he's giving Ron Dunbar, Ron Ford, you know, they're in conference. I'm sure whenever whenever, and he's given the okay for these functions to be. Uh, dealt with, supported my vote, you know, my being a part of what's going on. But as far as saying to me, hey, Shirley, welcome, you know, blah, 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 you know, no, no, it was, it was none of that. <laughs> so he was a little strange, a little strange. I liked him. I thought he was taller than what he was, than what he is. It's the boots that he used to wear. <laughs> so he had this huge presence, but yet there was this little man, this little man with this big persona. So yeah, I, I needed to speak with him. I needed to know that I was okay, that he was okay with me. And uh, I found out later, well, hey, if you weren't okay, you would have known from the beginning that you are not okay. But he, he loved it. He accepted it. He enjoyed what I was doing. 
I found out later. What about, um, what was your exposure to Bootsy? Bootsy, yeah, he was very shy, very standoffish. Um, just a sweet, sweet soul. But he had, um, he had a lot of people surrounding him. So it was really hard to, and by my being new to this organization, it was really hard to, um, to really get a, a fix on Boosie because he was in, he was recording, was in you hear him, you see him, but he was very distant in the beginning. So I, I looked at him as being, he was a lot like George, big presence, but yet very distant, very shy. <laughs> yeah, he didn't know me. So it would, it would take a minute for him to get to know me. Did you get exposure to Bernie Worrell? Yes. Oh, I love Bernie. Bernie was another huge character. Very playful. Very sweet. Genius. Loved my vocals. Um, I would have done more work with Bernie, I believe, if things hadn't been so political. Uh, females, you know, the wives. <laughs> uh, the wives had a lot of influence over their men at that time. And uh, if they didn't like you, you know, you don't get in. You're, you're not getting close to my man. <laughs> and uh, at that time, Bernie's wife... I guess she had been studying me for a moment. And we were in Europe. We were in London and in one of the hotel rooms talking and laughing. And she presented me with a scarf, which I still have. Uh, that was a welcoming. That was, I like you, Shirley. That was the extent of it. And you mentioned uh, Gary, you know, urging you on with your vocals. Um, what can you share about, uh, you know, Gary as a talent and, and a, as a person? Gary was Parlette's producer. He was one of the first producers of Parlette. Gary was the vocal coach. Gary was good with putting uh, the harmonies together. He would give you an idea and you work from the idea. He was, um, again, Gary, <laughs> just, just lots of energy. Big ego. <laughs> uh, just so sweet. Just so sweet. 
Gary was uh, another, I was surrounded by musical geniuses. All of them were musical geniuses. And um, Gary taught me how to relax. Just relax. You know, get out of your, your head. Get out of your own head. And um, we talked a lot about how to approach the song, uh, how to use characters in the song. So he was a big little brother. I think I'm a year older than Gary. I thought he was much, much older, but he just lived a very quick life, <laughs> very fast life. Yeah, I loved him. He was, he was my first P-Funk mentor, I would say. We spent a lot of time together. And he's uh, responsible for me being on uh, the majority of the music I recorded with P-Funk. He would always call me. He would say, uh, when I get to town, when I call you, when I'm on my way, um, I want you to be ready. <laughs> okay. So I spent a lot of time just hanging out with Gary, picking him up from the airport, taking him to the airport, you know, hanging out in the, the uh, hotel room, just walking around, eating dinner, you know, whatever, just being in the, just being in the glow, in the flow of things, just learning how to just flow, how to relax. Yeah. I loved him and his wife, Linda big, huge influences my musical, my early P-Funk life. Gary is responsible for my um, being one of the first vocals, myself, Amalia, we laid the foundation. Myself, Gary, and Malia laid the foundation for a song called Atomic Dog. And I thank Gary for that. I really do. Wow. Did you um, get to meet or spend much time with Junie? Another big influence. Yes, I did. <laughs> I did. He's, um, Junie will call me. Well, you know, the fellas are like, <laughs> okay. So the idea was, who's going to get it first? <laughs> Who's going to connect with her first? So they're laying in the cut, so to speak, sizing me up. Okay. So the idea, of course, was to record my voice. And that's what, that was my connection with Junie. We talked a lot. He would call me um, when he was on his way to the city. Uh, we did a song called um, The Electric Spanking of War Babies. And there's an exchange in the, the beginning of this song. It's between uh, a human and an um, alien. 
I have all the vinyls here, by the way. So. Yes, yeah. yes. All the that originals. That album cover caused a lot of controversy, unbeknownst to me at the time, that uh, there was a feminine group organization that wanted that album banned because of the album cover. But Junie brought me in to do that recording. And again, I, I thank him for it. <laughs> and people don't know that that's me uh, in the conversation with the alien who was Junie Morrison at the time. <laughs> I loved it. I love recording that album because I could just, you know, space out. I could just get into my, the creativeness, you know. It was fun. He was, uh, again, a big influence. As a matter of fact, Parlette did, Junie brought Parlette in to record, I think, two, two records, two um, sides. I can't tell you the name of them right now, but it's a Junie Morrison production. It was one of his solo projects. It wasn't uh, Parliament Funkadelic, but one of his solo projects. So he he really enjoyed Parlette. He loved our voices. The thing is about these <clears throat> these guys, they were geniuses. And, you know, because it was such a big organization, so much was happening in a, in a short period of time. And it's just, you know, a lot of the fans still trying to sort out who did what, when, I and, know. and, and, you know, guys like Junie and, and Gary and even Bernie to some extent, they were kind of enigmatic, you know, and um, they didn't like try to get a lot of attention or fame on their own. And so we're trying to put the pieces together and figure out, you know, who did what and what they were all about, you know? I know that's, that's the mystery. And that's what keeps this whole thing afloat, this whole Parliament Funkadelic thing afloat. And I am so grateful for it. And the time is now, because I didn't understand why. I mean, because I thought you knew everything. I mean, it was right there in your face, so to speak, I thought. But no, it wasn't. And maybe that was on purpose. Maybe it was purposely done that way. So I think George, who is the, the master puppeteer for creating it that way, because here we are today, 2022, of course, 1978. I couldn't see 2022, <laughs> but here we are. This is like a new beginning. So, I mean, it's it's not a a comeback, so to speak. It's a continuum of, and we're unraveling. Uh, we're unraveling the 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 music, the the inspiration, the people who brought about the inspiration. So I, I really 
thank the fans for keeping this afloat. Really, I do. Well, it's, you know, Funk's a way of life, you know, and especially P-Funk. It, 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 it shaped us, it, it molded us, and it's had such a profound impact on us through our lives. Um, Truly. Who, Truly. You know, you're talking about guys, these guys being kind of shy and things like that. Were there one or two guys in the in the bands in the funk mob that were particularly like more outgoing and kind of in your face? Those people were the ones, the second tier, I guess you could say. They didn't have, they didn't play uh, the role that uh, a Gary Scheider or a Bernie Worrell or a Bootsy Collins played. Uh, Gary was all over the place. He didn't care. Um, he, he befriended everybody. Um, but uh, you had the, the musicians. There were so many of them. Um, the Blackbird, McKnight's, uh, the Skeets, uh, 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 oh my God! So many of them. the horn players, uh, Greg and Greg, Benny Thomas, and yeah, and uh, uh, Maceo and and uh, yeah, yeah, they were yeah, <laughs> you know, those are like your brothers. They were they weren't as in your face as. Uh, well, they were in your face. Maceo. Skeet wasn't so much. He was shy. Skeet. Um, the Ollie brothers. Yeah. Uh, the Ollie brothers. We were family. We were definitely family. Um, the Ollie brothers, Gordon Carlton, his sister Janice. Um, our keyboard player. Oh, my God. Uh, Ernesto Wilson, uh, there was a man in Salisbury, the drummer Kenny Colton, who was outstanding. Yeah, they were family. Yeah. So we hung out, we broke bread together, we traveled together. Yeah. Take a look at that. Oh my God. The original vinyl. <laughs> The original yeah. is still in the wrapping. Well, I keep it in a. I keep oh, them all. Okay. In, I keep them all in. But oh, um, that is so cool. What do you remember about doing your first full album with them with as Parlet? Just it was so it was so uh, political because the girls were going through a breakup, a major breakup. Um, they brought me in to do the, uh, that was my first recording, my first full recording of an album, but it was so, um, politically motivated. And I say that because Malia was, um, in deep argument, discussion, with George Clinton about monies. Um, Jeanette Perkins 
who was never happy, it seemed. She was always disgruntled about something. I'm sure she was disgruntled about my coming in. She was probably disgruntled about Malia being in the position that she was in. I believe that Jeanette always wanted to be the focal point. She wanted to be the center of attention. So it was a, it was political. It was very political for me. So I felt as though I had to be on, as they say, on the one. So I had to make sure that um, um, the role I played was polished. And it was. I loved it secretly. I loved it. <laughs> this is my time to shine, you know. Um, I had said earlier how it took a minute for me to find my footing. Uh, you know, you have to get that voice to flow the way that it should flow because it's like magic. It should be just like ma effortless. Um, it took a minute. Uh, I had step out parts, not realizing that they would be uh, integral to shaping the song <laughs> at that time. Now I understand, but it, it was political and it was, it was so much tension. It was never a relaxed moment, you know, where you can enjoy. I enjoyed it quietly with myself, me, myself, and I. But to share it with the girl, no, I, I, I didn't trust. I didn't trust anyone because everybody was crazy. Everybody had a motive for doing what they were doing. And so, you know, I had to keep my feelings close to heart. I had to keep close to heart. But I enjoyed it. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful ride. <laughs> There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.